Okay, Genesis chapter 3. We're only going to do the first seven verses tonight. We're continuing verse by verse through the book of Genesis, taking it nice and slow, because similar to the book of Acts, when we get to the end, we're going to be doing multiple chapters at a time. So you got to take it slow while you can. And there's so much to get into. It's all foundational. Up to this point, we've seen the creation of the world. We've seen the creation of the first man and the first woman. But unfortunately, beginning in chapter 3, it's all downhill until you hit the New Testament. Um, This is the story of the fall of man. This is the introduction of sin into the world. This is when Adam and Eve forfeited the paradise of Eden for the world that we live in now. And we're going to actually take two weeks to go through this whole story. This week we're going to do the first seven verses, and next week we're going to do the rest of the chapter. So tonight is focusing on the temptation itself, and next week is on the curse and what happened after. So uh, if there's something that it seems like we're not getting to, we're going to get to it next week because it's, it's too important for us to get into. And tonight, as I said, we're focusing on the temptation and that serpent that we all hate so much. (laughs) Now, because of the society that we live in, this is a very scientific, fancies itself rather smart society, there are some doctrines that are embarrassing for us to talk about. They shouldn't be, but they are. And I think that applies nowhere more to the belief in the devil. You can say you believe in God. People will respect you. You can have a conversation. They'll listen to you. You maybe even talk about angels and demons and like, okay, I mean, maybe there's something there. Who knows? But the minute you say the devil, all of a sudden you're a looney tune. All of a sudden you have gone outside the realm of what we can talk about respectably. And it's laughable, unfortunately. And I think that there have been a lot of, like I said, cartoons that have made the devil out to be something to be laughed at and something to be flippantly dismissed. But you've also got a lot of wacky preachers that have done a disservice to the church by making the devil out to be way more than the scripture does. And then by giving the devil credit for a lot of things that he probably doesn't deserve credit for. Uh, and people see that and they don't want anything to do with it. But I'm not interested in either of those things. We're interested in what the Word has to say. And the Bible makes it clear that the devil is very real and that he is our greatest enemy. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why are people not responding to the gospel? It says the God of this world, the little g God, Satan, the one who rules over this world, the usurper, has blinded their eyes. Sometimes you preach to somebody and you're explaining the gospel to them and and their logic just seems so twisted and backwards and weird and they're having emotional reactions to things that don't even seem that controversial and you wonder why. Well, because you have an active opponent in that fight. It's not just you. You have an enemy who hates you, hates the gospel, and hates the person that you're trying to evangelize. If we fail to believe in the devil, it'll lead to a failure to understand the reality of sin and a failure to properly guard against his devices. There's a song by Keith Green, who's one of my favorite Christian artists, and the song is called No One Believes in Me Anymore, and it's written from the devil's perspective and it's, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's also like, okay, there's a lesson to be learned there. And the chorus says, 
It's the devil supposed to be speaking. I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. No one's watching for my tricks because no one believes in me anymore. If Hitler had been able to convince the Allies that there was no such thing as the Nazi army, it's been a rather effective trick, don't you think? And we think, ah, we would never be able to doubt the existence of an invading army. Well, that's exactly what the enemy has done. He's convinced a lot of people that he doesn't exist, and so no one's on the lookout for him. And we wonder why things happen, and it's like you've completely ignored this whole other dimension of the fight that you're in. The Bible says it was Satan who deceived Eve in the garden. He's responsible for our downfall. Christians who want to try to explain why things are so bad, explain the problem of evil, but they don't want to make any reference to Satan out of embarrassment, they're doing the world a disservice. Say, well, why is it like this? Say, well, because it's not the Lord. Well, then whose fault is it? The devil's? Uh, Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Every evil in the world began in this story right here, and the devil is out to get us still. Thankfully, the Bible says that we do not have to be outwitted by Satan. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, For we are not ignorant of his designs. We know what he's up to. We know how he operates. We know what he does. And we're going to draw some of these things out as we go through this. We're going to see how the devil tempted Eve. And through her bad example, we're going to learn how we ought to resist temptation. Because you can. The devil has been declawed and defanged at the cross. But he's still out there. He's still desperate to see God's people fail. And it's only through Jesus that we can overcome. But if you are in Christ, the devil has no further authority over you unless he can convince you to do something sinful. And we're going to study how to avoid that today. Let me read these seven verses and then we'll back it up and go a little slower. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So let's back up to the beginning of this horrible story, and just look at that first sentence. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We're introduced here to this serpent, which says is more crafty, more sneaky, more cunning. That word is actually translated in Proverbs often as wise or prudent or shrewd. But here, there's obviously a sneaky element to it. And this serpent is an interesting figure here because we don't see it quite like this ever again. Now, there's two terrible ways to read this, and I'm going to blow through them very quickly because they're not really worth your time. The first is that this story is a fable. It's like the tortoise and the hare. It's got a talking snake. It's got some people that eat a fruit, and then that ends up being the curse that falls on the whole world. It can't possibly be real, to which I would say, why not? We've made it very clear that this is a time out of time. This is so different from anything we've ever experienced. So 
I'm not going to waste your time with people that are going to say that this passage is a fable. Unironically, when they read, has God really said? When you read a passage where the, the serpent says, has God really said? And then you say, now this passage isn't true. It's like, okay, I'm, a little, I'm willing to stake my claim on taking it literally. But there's also some people, and this is a new one that I've heard, and some people have, have picked it up and ran with it, that, well, what this is, is that this is a, an insight to our evolutionary past because we evolved from monkeys and monkeys lived in trees like the Garden of Eden. And the thing the monkeys had to look out for was snakes living in the trees. So we invented this legend about how we were, we were uh, forced to leave the trees by the snakes. And it's like, first of all, it's like, first of all, where do I start with that? <laughs> but first of all, when something evolves over millions of years, are they remembering? Do monkeys like tell each other this story? It's, it's ridiculous, and I, I'm not going to waste your time anymore with that. But that still raises the question, what is this serpent? More importantly, why is he talking? And why is there a wicked creature in God's garden paradise? Now, that word for serpent is nachash in Hebrew. It just sounds evil, doesn't it? Nachash. And there's no secret to that word. It just means snake. Uh, but it is interesting when you look into this because it's very closely related to the word for bronze in Hebrew. You remember in 2 Kings when uh, the king broke the bronze serpent that Moses had made, and it was called Nehushtan. Nehush is very close to Nahash, which is the word for snake. So some people have speculated maybe it's related to the word for bronze or shining. And it's also very close to the word Nahash, but it's, if I'm not mistaken, a short A instead of a long A. It means divination or magic, which both of those kind of fit. Because you've got this demonic being, shining one, I guess you could say, and dark magic. But then, of course, the question becomes, did those words come from this word or did this one come from that one? So uh, it's hard to know. There's not really a, a clue every time you look into the background of the word. But it is interesting to look into, I think. And now some people will say, all right, so we've got a snake. Why is the snake talking? And I have heard some speculation. Well, every animal could talk in the garden. It's not what it says. Uh, <laughs> And that's really as much as I can say about that. I mean, I suppose it is technically, theoretically possible, but that's what's called an argument from silence. It's like, well, it doesn't say that they didn't all talk. It's a bad way to do Bible study. Uh, if it turns out that they could all talk and then the Lord took that away from them, that doesn't change my faith in any way. Uh, but it does not say that here. So the fact that Eve doesn't react to it is sometimes used as an argument that, oh, snake, all snakes could talk, but doesn't say that, so uh, I'm not inclined to go that. I think the easiest and simplest answer, what we know from other passages in Scripture, is that this snake is being manipulated and possessed and controlled by the devil himself. We know from Luke 8, remember when Jesus cast the demons out of the man and they went into the pigs? Animals can be possessed, according to the Bible, so I think that's a much more likely scenario here. Because twice in the book of Revelation, the devil is called that ancient serpent, or the serpent of old, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. So whatever the mechanics of what's going on here, this serpent is Satan, the devil. He's not given that name in this passage, but that's exactly who we're dealing with. This, then, is our first introduction to Satan in the Bible. We're not told from here where he came from. In fact, the Bible does not have a lot to say about Satan's background. And there are a lot of things that we traditionally and culturally have picked up, and then you go back into the Bible to try to find them, and you can't find them. 
Uh, so I'm going to try and, and give you what we know and then what we think we know and let you do that Bible study on your own. But let's, let's get something very clear first. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The devil is not co-eternal with God. You know, that there's the eternal good and there's the eternal evil. And the devil is the eternal evil. That is not what the Bible says. The devil is a created being. He is less than God. And 90% of his tricks come from convincing people that he is equal to God. He is not. He's a created being. So the question is, when was Satan created? I've read this verse to you before. In Job 38, verse 7, it says that when God created the world, all the sons of God shouted for joy. And we know especially in the book of Job, that reference to the sons of God refers to the angelic host of heaven. So when God was creating the world, there was that angelic audience. And it doesn't specifically in Genesis say where they were, but we know that the Lord made them. So he's somewhere in that crowd. And at some point between the creation of the angels and right now in Genesis 3, one of them chose to rebel against God and he would forever be given that name Satan or the devil, which means the adversary or the accuser. And there are two Old Testament passages that are traditionally used to describe the fall of Satan. I want to make clear to you, neither one of them specifically mentions the devil. They're actually written to two kings. One's in Ezekiel, one's in Isaiah. And the first king is in Babylon. The second king is in Tyre. And the Lord has a rebuke from the prophet for them. But traditionally, I mean like for thousands of years, Christians have read these passages to refer to Satan, to go beyond those kings. And I think that there's good biblical reason to think that. Very often in the New Testament, when they're interpreting an Old Testament prophecy, they'll say, for example, David said, you will not let my soul be abandoned in Sheol. And Peter said, well, David is in Sheol. He's in the grave. So this could only refer to Jesus. You do a similar thing. You're going to see when we read them that it's talking about the king of Babylon, but this goes a little beyond the king of Babylon. So it could be that that king is a symbol or a type, it's called in Bible, for something uh, beyond himself, which would be Satan. So there is a long, long history of interpreting these passages these ways. So I'm, uh, I'm going to stick to that. I think it's safe to do that. But let's turn now. Let's go to the first one. They're kind of long. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Will you turn there with me? Verses 11 through 19. So king of Tyre. Tyre was a city on the seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea, north of Israel. It was a big-time trading city. It was very similar to New York in a lot of ways in that all the trade went in and out of that place. And they were able to withstand empires coming and going because you needed Tyre on your side because Tyre is how you're going to make all your money. Well, the Lord in Ezekiel 28 tells the prophet this. Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. 
I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. All right. So that was written to the king of Tyre. Do you see how this goes a little beyond the king of a city on the Mediterranean seaboard? You were in Eden. You were a guardian cherub covered with jewels and gems. And that's probably a reference to Satan. This is probably describing the fall of the devil. He's called an anointed guardian cherub. A cherub, of course, is an angel. And don't think of those little babies with wings now when you think of that, all right? This is... A fearsome, burning angel. And he talks about him being covered with stones and flame and jewels and all that. And saying, you were the, the most beautiful thing I created. And you were in Eden on the mountain of God. Some have then taken that to mean that Satan may have been the one originally who was given authority to, to govern the world in a spiritual sense. But it's be a bit of a stretch to say that for certain from there. And he says he was on the holy mountain of God, but God cast him out because your heart was proud because of your beauty. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Satan saw how God had created him and was lifted up with pride, and so God cast him out. That's the first one. The second one, if you'll turn to the left a little bit, is in Isaiah chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 12 through 15. This one's a little shorter. This one is a very long passage, so I've condensed it. This is to the king of Babylon. Babylon, very frequently in the Bible, is used as a symbol of Satan or of wickedness. And so we're going to just read verses 12 through 15 here. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So again, to the king of Babylon, but it's a little beyond the king of Babylon. I will ascend my throne above the stars, above the Lord. I will be like the most high. This is where you get more of the devil's motivation. So that Ezekiel passage gave you his place in the world. He was an anointed cherub. He was in Eden. He was glorious. He was beautiful. And the Lord cast him out because of his pride. Well, in Isaiah, you get a little more insight to that. It's what's often called the five I wills of Satan. He wanted to set himself up as God and rule over the world. This also, by the way, is where we get the name Lucifer. 
It says, how you are fallen, O day star, son of the dawn. If you are familiar with your, I believe it's Roman history, uh, Lucifer was the name of one of the gods that they worshipped, and he was the god of the morning star. The word Lucifer, Lucy is like Luke, it means light, and fur means to bear, so light bearer. He was the one that brought the morning star. So very similar to how Satan is described here in the book of Isaiah. So the Christians adopted that Roman name for Satan, and that's why we refer to him as Lucifer. It's a reference to that passage here. So when you take these two together, you get a picture of who the devil is, an exalted angel in heaven who was cast down because of his pride and rebellion. Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in Revelation chapter 12, another symbolic description of Satan, it says, Revelation 12, 3 through 4, A sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven crowns. So this is the ultimate wicked serpent, right? A giant dragon with seven heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. As I've already mentioned tonight, the stars in the Bible are very often used as a reference to angels. So that passage where it says that the dragon threw down a third of the stars of heaven, we take that to be a reference to the fallen angels that go after Satan. And I guess you could say that a third of the angels went after him in that rebellion. That's where that comes from. So we know Satan is a fallen angel who took a great host of angels with him. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that hell was prepared originally for the devil and his angels. And we call them demons now. So this is who we're dealing with. That's what the Bible has to say about the devil. Anything beyond that, you get into the realm of speculation and and you really need to be careful. You can have your opinions, but you want to make sure you hold them loosely and stand firmly on the things that the Bible says clearly. So this is Satan, but why is he here? Why is he in the Garden of Eden using this snake as a mouthpiece to deceive humanity? Well, first of all, you need to understand God permitted him in the Garden because God does not compel obedience from people, does he? He desires us to freely give him our love and our worship and our adoration. And, you know, you don't do your children any good by keeping them away from temptation. And if you can force them to always do the right thing and always say, I love you and always obey, well, it's not true free love, is it? And this is what the Lord wanted. So he allowed the tempter. But secondly, you need to understand the character of Satan. Why is he doing this? Well, his name, as I've said, means accuser. And most of the stories that have the devil in them, he's accusing somebody. In Job chapter 1 and 2, he's coming up to God and saying, God, Job is a hypocrite. You take away all his stuff and he's going to curse you to your face. Zechariah chapter 3, Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest. It's a symbol of the nation of Israel saying, you can't redeem them. Look at what they did. You're a just judge. You can't let them go free. He's an accuser, an adversary. You could put that as prosecuting attorney. I think that the devil looks at humanity and just despises it. He sees people as inferior. He sees them as worthless. And because he is thwarted in his sinful ambitions, he's out to ruin the rest of the world. So what does he do? He pushes people to be their worst selves. I know what you're really like, and I can prove it. 
I'm going to tempt you and lead you away and leave you on the ground full of sin, full of brokenness and say, see, that's what you really are. And then to accuse us before God and try to compel God to judge sin because God is just. He must judge sin. Satan is a ruiner. He wants to ruin everything. There's nothing good about him. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. There's no love in Satan. There's no splendor in the devil. It's a very strange thing, and this is a little rabbit trail, but if you've ever read Paradise Lost, it's the English epic poem of the fall of man, and you read it, and it's, you know, it's not scripture, but it's, it's very edifying, I think, but when I read it, I looked at a lot of the stuff that's surrounding it, like the introduction to the book and some of the things around it, and people now are starting to read that story with Satan as the hero of that story. It's like the weirdest, like, I'm like, it's the devil. <laughs> this, this is not the good guy. What are we doing? But people see that and they, well, there's something noble about that. No, there's not. There's nothing noble about Satan. It's weird to have to say that. But that's his character. He hates life. He hates people. He hates the world God has created it. He wants to dominate it or destroy it. And there are people like this too. Have you ever met someone like this? They feel that they've not been given all they deserve. I'm better than this. I've known some very smart people that get like this because they feel I'm smart. I'm capable. I should be up here. I'm not. They look down at everyone else. I should be better than you, but I'm not. I should be above you, but I'm not. And they, they then feel no guilt in lying, hurting, deceiving people. And to use a very technical word here, that's demonic. It's devilish. When people say things like, people are a plague on this world. You've heard people say things like that. That's not godly. We're made in the image of God. The Lord doesn't say things about us like that. That's devilish, you could say. So here he is. He's disgraced. He's cast down from his exalted place, sneaking around to lie and deceive so that he can destroy what God has made. If I can't have the world, nobody can have the world. I'm going to ruin it. Well, what does he say? The end of verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here's the conversation that the devil had with Eve that would ultimately, of course, lead to her sin, the sin of her husband, and the curse upon the whole world. To remind you, you know this, the only prohibition that God had put upon Adam and Eve in this garden was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan's goal here is to get Eve to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that opening line there where it says, has God actually said? Did God actually say? This is actually tough to translate in Hebrew because it's, it's very idiomatic. It's, in Hebrew, it's af ki amar Elohim. And that word for af, it means like indeed, or it can even be like a scoffing noise, like ah. So he's saying, and indeed God has really said. So you could almost read that like this. I can't believe that God says you can't eat any of these trees. Or how ridiculous God said. God really said that you can't eat any of this? Indeed, really, he said that? That's the tone you got to pick up here. This is his opening line. Henry Morris said, Sin always begins by questioning either the word of God or the goodness of God or both. 
This is what the devil does. Did God really say? It begins by getting us to question God's word. And here's what he does. You question God's word while you try to maintain belief in God's character. Listen, this is what God's word says. And God is good, so this can't be right because that's not good. We still love God, but there might be some mistakes in his word. I thought God loved you, Eve. He wouldn't tell you not to eat any of the, the trees here. For example, people want to question God's teachings on sexual morality. They say, listen, God is a God of love. And for him to say not to do that, well, that's hateful. So God couldn't have said that because God's not hateful. Or you're trying to do honor to God by dismissing his word, which doesn't work, but it's a lie that people fall for. We all have fallen for it before. That simple phrase, did God really say? It slips into way too many conversations. You need to be aware of this. Be, be aware of that phrase coming up in different ways. Did God really say? Did God really say that? You can hear this sometimes when you hear pastors preaching or you hear certain folks talking about the Bible and all this big academic language, is really passionate stuff. It all really boils down to, come on, guys, did God really say that? We're really going to believe this book? That's his goal. He's trying to undermine the word of God and therefore the character of God. And we can see how his strategy plays out here. So we're going to run through four things if you're taking notes. Four moves. If, if Satan is playing chess, these are his four moves right here. And uh, I think this will help us in our own lives and being able to watch out for this stuff. So first thing he says is, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? Number one, this is Satan's move. He goes too far. He says, wow, God said you can't even eat any of these trees? That was obviously not true. Why would he say that? Here's what the devil does. He will say something that is three steps too far and allow himself to be backed up too. So now he's gained one step when it looks like we've won a victory. Ha ha, we pushed him back. But now we've gone a little too far. Do you see how Eve responds? Eve responds herself by saying, oh yeah, we're not even supposed to touch it. That's not what God said. God never said, don't touch the tree. He said, don't eat the fruit of the tree. So what Satan does is he tries to yank her three steps ahead, and she backs up, but now she's backed up to one step beyond where she should have been in the first place. They were allowed to touch the tree, and they were allowed to eat of every tree except one. He's made this conversation not about the liberality of God's permission, but about the restriction, the one thing that God said they could not do. And in her attempt to stop the serpent from going too far, she herself had intensified the commandment, which she should not have done. This is something we got to watch out for, guys. When people will say something wild about God's word that's obviously not true, they're probably not going for a touchdown. They're probably just going for a first down. They just want to move the ball forward a little bit. And the, the world will do this. And you'll see sometimes theologians or pastors or whoever, politicians, I don't know, they'll say something crazy. They'll, they'll do a Hail Mary pass. And what always happens if you're a Miami Dolphins fan anyway? <laughs> Tom Brady throws a Hail Mary pass and you barely break it up. So now the defense is spread out and you're in your pre-defense. So what's he going to do? They're going to run the ball right up the gut and get seven quick yards. That's what the enemy tries to do here. He says, you're not allowed to eat any of this? No, we're allowed to eat all of it, just not that one. We're not supposed to touch that one. We've moved the ball. Got to watch out for that. Second thing, he opens a conversation. We are now discussing God's word. They are evaluating 
God's word. It is never a good idea to get into a discussion about the merits of God's commandments with somebody who hates God. Not every theological debate is worth your time. Sometimes you lose more simply by having the conversation than by walking away. Sometimes we've got to be willing, guys, to say, I'm not having this discussion. Wow, God said you can't eat any of the trees of the garden? No. The Lord said we could eat all of them except for that one. That seems a little intense, doesn't it? I'm not talking about this with you. I'm not going there. Because by even entering into that arena, we have said, okay, what's up for debate? Is it right that God said? We don't debate that. We've got to be careful, you guys. In our desire sometimes to be wise, to be open-minded, to seem fair, sometimes even an attempt to be winsome to a non-believer, we'll have a debate about something that is not up for debate. There's a difference between explaining what God says and playing ping-pong back and forth. Something settled by God's word is not up for debate. One of the greatest examples I've ever seen of this long time ago, I guess several years, but it was Rick Warren, who's a pastor in California, was on the Piers Morgan show, and they were discussing gay marriage, and Piers Morgan leans forward and he says, haven't we learned by now that gay marriage is acceptable? It's time for an amendment to the Bible. It's like he thought he was saying something really big and profound. It was, you know, time for an amendment to the Bible. And Rick Warren, I love it, he goes, no chance. <laughs> Boom. He's like, I'm not even talking about this with you. And you can maybe come up with a thousand good answers, but then what's going to happen? Now this show is discussing it, and now these people over here, and now there's some wacky pastor that's going to say, no, he's right. And now all of a sudden we're having this conversation that we never should have had in the first place. There are many people who will use a prolonged debate to score little victories. They're content to spend years, even a lifetime, undermining the solid truth. The devil is patient He's cunning. He's willing to wait. He thinks in terms of centuries, not in terms of minutes like we do. So the third thing, once the conversation is open, he begins to stir up resentment against God. Now he has forced Eve to begin to describe what she's not allowed to do. Rather than we can eat any of the fruit of any of these trees, it's this is the one we're not allowed to have. He's hinting to her that God is jealously holding something back. God knows that your eyes will be opened. God's keeping something from you. Rather than saying, God would never do that. She's like, maybe you're right. Eve is in the Garden of Eden. And the devil, though, is convincing her that there's something more. He's inserting his own bitterness into the conversation. And he's framing God as the bad guy. Because now what is the conversation? We're affirming God's word, but now we're questioning God's character. Do you see the move that he's made? Before we're questioning what God said, but we were keeping God's character intact. But now what he's saying is, yes, God said that, but it was unfair for him to do that. Now we're affirming the word, but we're questioning God's character. And it's all going to collapse in a few minutes here. The most common one you'll hear is, yes, God is going to send people to hell. But isn't that tragic? Isn't that just the worst thing? I don't know why God would do that. I wish he wouldn't do that. What are we doing? We're saying that what God is doing, this is what it says, but it's not right. It's not fair. It's not kind. It's not loving. I wish it was different. All of a sudden, we're questioning God. You can always tell a wolf in the sheepfold by the way they talk about God's word. 
If the word, the Bible, the commandments of God, if they're spoken of as a burden that we've got to overcome, yeah, I know it's hard, but it's what the Bible says. It's what we've got to do. Watch out, because that person has no love for God. Remember what the people said in the book of Acts when the gospel was preached to them, when the jailer in Philippi saw that God had set Paul and Silas free? He got on his knees and said, what do I do? That's a godly response. I love this story. There was a man back in Virginia that we had prayed for for a long time. He finally gets saved. He had been into drugs. He had been into everything you can think of. Finally, it all collapsed on him. He comes to the church and he says, all right, it's time to get this right. And he was having a discussion with uh, my father, who's the pastor. And he was kind of running through this long checklist of like, okay, I'm a Christian now. What do I got to do? And then he said, all right, what about tithing? And we all know tithing is a very sensitive subject. We don't want to push it on people. And my dad starts to give this nice biblical explanation like, well, look, here's what the Bible says. You know, we want to be generous, but we don't want to be legalistic about it. And this guy cut him off and said, hey, just tell me what to do. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That is somebody whose life has been changed. Like, I don't care. Just tell me what to do. Jesus saved my life. He can tell me to do whatever he wants. Somebody who comes in and says, I wish we didn't have to keep it like that. There's no love for God there, and you've got to watch out. True theology, true discussion of the word, it should lead to a greater worship, a greater adoration of Jesus. If you read some of these old like theologies from way back in the day, like from thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, you read like Luther or Calvin or Augustine or some of these guys from way back when, these are deep, heavy theological things, big academic ideas. But you can do your devotions reading these things because it's so worshipful. It's so exalting of Christ. And we think, well, you know, let's leave that aside and just talk about the facts. It's not good because what the devil does is he introduces resentment. We know that God is good. We know nothing of good apart from him. So for us to kind of come in and say, well, Lord, based on your character, you shouldn't have said that. God's like, I'm God. You only know what good is because I told you what it is. This is what the enemy does. And here's the fourth step. This is the, the checkmate move. He lies. He just straight up lies. We're no longer doing tricky. We're no longer being deceptive. We're no longer doing half-truths. He just straight up lies. You will not die. He says, you will become like God. That word for God is Elohim. So you could read that if you like as, you will become God's little G. You and Adam will be God's right up there with the Father. You will be God's yourselves, knowing good and evil. God knows everything. You will know everything too. The big lie that Satan is always telling, and what he tells here, things would be better if we were in charge. If God was not in charge, but I was, everything would be great. If you and Adam knew good and evil just like God did, you'd be able to come up with a better system. Don't you love how Satan <laughs> projects his own sin onto God? God's jealous of you. Who's jealous of who right here? Satan's jealous of God. And he's trying to tell Eve, oh, it's God's the one with the problem, not us. If God would just get out of the way, we could rule the world better. Satan is a manipulator, but you know what he does? When he's worked us through this thing, where he's jerked us around, we're having discussions we shouldn't have, he's got our minds all twisted it up, that's when he throws the body blow. That's when he goes in with the big left hook. He's going to try and take us down. He's going to introduce doubts, and then he's going to introduce lies. Faith has power, does it not? So believing a lie has the opposite. It has destructive power. 
It's all about what you believe to be true. So Satan comes in and he tries to get you to believe a lie. That's what he does. Number one, he goes too far. He goes for a Hail Mary, and then when the defense is spread, he runs it right up the gut. Number two, he opens a conversation that should not be had. Number three, he stirs up resentment against God. And number four, he lies. Those are the tactics of Satan. You've got to watch out for them. You can see this in a thousand different versions out there. When people are saying wacky things, okay, maybe that was a little too far, but let me back it up. At least we know this, right? Can we at least have a discussion? Okay, sure, maybe there's some problems we can look at. And next thing you know, yeah, I mean, it's just, okay, yeah, I think you're right, but I mean, that's really a shame that that's the way it is, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? God's not good. You're right, He's not. Watch out for that. Ephesians 6 11 and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's your enemy. Satan has been at this for a long time, and he's very good at it. I think the most common open door to a bad decision that Satan gives is, I know what the Bible says, but I mean, uh, surely there's a middle ground somewhere. We want to be balanced, right? You don't want to be crazy. You don't want to be so dogmatic. I know that's what the Bible says, but, uh, you know, that's the principle, but the principle has to be lived out, and then now he's got us. We need to stand on God's word and trust in his character. When somebody wants to say, I don't know about what the Bible says, well, then I'm not having this conversation. I just don't, I don't know if God is good all the time. Then we're not having this discussion. We have a separate discussion to have, which is that God is always good and his word is always true. So that we can succeed where Eve failed. Let's read verse 6. Most tragic verse in the Bible right here. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve succumbs to the temptation, and so does Adam, who was with her. This was the moment when our fellowship with God was shattered into pieces. Now, next week, we're going to look at the curse and how God runs through Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And he explains how each individual was responsible for this. But you do see, and I'm going to just mention it, Adam was here. And Adam was not deceived. I know that because 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 says that Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And Paul uses that passage as an explanation for why there should be male leadership in the church, because this is the colossal failure of male leadership in Scripture. Adam knew better. Adam should have stepped in and said, ah, no, 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 Eve, we're not having this talk. We're not doing this, but he didn't. And Adam is going to be faulted in the next chapter for not doing this. Eve was tricked. Adam did this with both eyes open. I just loved her too much, and so I couldn't stand being without her. Nice try. But we need to remember this, too, because there is a... a, insidious feminist movement that pushes against the church and says, no, see, it's not right for us to blame Eve. She didn't do anything wrong. God blames Adam. Eve was absolutely at fault for giving into temptation, for taking advantage of Adam's love for her, for not listening to the headship that God had given to her husband. And the Lord is going to talk about that more next chapter, but we just need to remember, you, you can't say, well, it was Eve's fault and Adam had nothing to do with it. 
Nor can you say, well, it was Adam's fault. Adam's one that should have stepped in. Both of those things are true. This is the worst situation. Why do we want to assign blame in terrible situations like this? So we'll talk about that more next week, but I just wanted to draw that out. That Adam was there, watched it happen, knew what was happening, and ate the fruit anyway. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell. And he still tempts us today. But we must overcome where Eve and Adam failed. This passage shows us the anatomy of a temptation. We saw what Satan does. Now it shows us what happens in our hearts when this is going on. And there are three angles that we see here that the temptation came against Eve, and they line up remarkably well with 1 John 2.16. So you can turn there if you like. But we've got to be aware of this so that we can guard against it. So we just looked at external things, but now you can look at internal things. 1 John 2.16 says that all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So we're going to run through these three things here. And we're going to see that these are the motivations that you need to watch out for in a tempting situation. First of all, Eve saw that the tree was good for food. This is the lust of the flesh. This is the desires of your body. In this case, it was hunger that led Eve astray. Oh, it's, it looks delicious. Doesn't it look delicious? We ought to eat it. God wouldn't want to keep something good from us. Hunger will lead us astray. We are not to be mastered by our bodies. We know this. God has given your body certain needs and certain drives. When you need food, you get hungry. You get tired, you get sleepy. You have a drive to enjoy your life. You have a drive for sex within marriage. All these things are natural and good. But you know what sin did? Sin broke, you know, like in every cartoon where like they, they push the thing too high in the factory and the factory just goes crazy. That's what's happened to your flesh. So the Lord tells us you cannot give in to your flesh because your flesh has gone crazy. Any decision that is made only to feed your body is not a godly one. Eve looked at that tree and she said, oh, that fruit does look delicious. I am hungry. I haven't eaten all day. It's good for, it looks good for food. There are a lot of sins that come from an overindulgence of the flesh. And let's go ahead and talk about food for a minute. We as a people have a hard time saying no when our body is hungry, don't we? Forget hungry. I just want to eat. I'm just driving by the restaurant, and it looks good. I'm bored. I'm going to eat. And I'm going to eat past being sated, and I'm going to eat to the point where I'm just feeding my flesh, and it's become gluttony. We don't like to preach on that sin because we're all guilty of it. <laughs> but it's still not good. And you can apply that to any drive of your body, being lazy instead of sleeping like you're supposed to. You need to discipline your body to be able to deny yourself in these moments. So when the temptation is coming and your flesh is just roiling, sometimes you get angry and you can feel your body just wants to get angry, right? I always feel anger like right here. <laughs> you can feel it coming. And you're like, oh, it would feel so good just to turn it loose. You got to watch out for that and say no. Teach your body to say no to itself. Second thing, Eve saw that it was a delight to the eyes. This is the lust of the eyes. The desire to have, the desire to possess. This is materialism. It's a beautiful fruit. I just, I want to touch it. I want to have it. 
I want to possess it. Is there anything wrong with money or possessions? No, there is not. Just like there's nothing wrong with the desire to eat or sleep. But when we become covetous, when we become avaricious, I want to have something that I don't have. That's not godly. That's when you are owned by the things that you own. And you know what? You do not have to be rich to be guilty of that. In fact, a lot of times it's the poorest people who are the most obsessed with money and stuff and having things. It's sinful. Jesus told us to renounce these things. There were some people, they wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, if it's going to work, you better sell everything you have. It's not going to work otherwise. There's a temptation in your heart to have, to possess. If the thought of going and becoming a missionary around the world or in the next town over becomes just heart-racingly terrifying to you, because I'd have to sell the house. What, What about the retirement fund? What about the boat? What about this or that? When tragedy strikes and all you can think about is the budget and you're lashing out at your family and you're getting angry and you're allowing yourself to get indulgent in sin because you're so materialistic that the thought of losing stuff is the worst thing for you. That's when Jesus said, give your stuff away. It owns you. And number three, Eve saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. This is the pride of life. I can be like God. I can be wise. I can have that knowledge. The desire to be great, the desire to be known, the desire to be exalted over other people. Selfishness, y'all, is a deadly thing. We want to be famous. We want to be beautiful. We want to be smart. We want to be powerful. None of that is from God. Jeremiah rebuked his scribe, Baruch, in Jeremiah 45. He said, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. The Lord says, listen, if you're driven by the desire to promote or exalt yourself, it's a sin. And when that's the motivation for doing something, oh, I'll look so good if I do that. Everybody will see me. Everybody will know me. Maybe maybe it's even like a sick backwards thing, like everybody's going to hate me because I'm going to be standing alone. It's like that's pride of life, and it's not how Jesus lived, and it's not how we ought to live. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, It constitutes just about every temptation you can imagine is going to fall in one of those categories. It's internal. Satan is out here doing the tempting, but in here, you've got all this stuff going on. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There are some things that some of y'all, the temptation wouldn't work. Hey, how would you like a billion dollars? why? (laughs) Then there's the rest of us that go, tell me more. (laughs) It's no good to to yell and scream and berate people and shake your finger at people that don't struggle with the same thing you do. Everyone is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Keep a close watch, church, on your motivations. They can tell you if you're about to make a holy decision or a wicked one. If you think, should I do this or should I not? Ask yourself, why am I doing it? Because I want that thing. It's the lust of the eyes. It'll feel so good, lust of the flesh. So I'll finally get back at them, pride of life. Watch out, you guys. This is how Jesus overcame temptation. He didn't let himself come into the conversation. Devil shows up. Hey, If you're the son of God, why don't you turn those stones into bread and know you're hungry? Jesus said, it is written, 
man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He's not having the discussion. He's not bringing himself into it. It is written. Satan says, oh, you want to talk about it's written? It's written that the angels will catch you and you won't dash your foot against a stone. So leap off the temple. Jesus said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, not bringing himself into it. He's saying, it is written. And then Satan finally says, all right, you know what? Forget it. Let's just talk, you and me. These are all the kingdoms of the world. Bow down before me and I'll give them all to you. And Jesus said, get out of my face. (laughs) Away with you, Satan. For it says, you shall serve the Lord alone. Jesus didn't even let his own thoughts come into the conversation. It says in the Bible that Michael, the archangel, would not even rebuke Satan. A lot of folks don't want to walk around. Devil, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Michael, the archangel, wouldn't even do that. He said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not talking to you. We spend way too much time talking to Satan, talking to the wicked one. A lot of folks that, and even people I love, but I think they're wrong on this. They say, when you come across somebody who's demon-possessed, you got to talk to him, you got to get his name, you got to get his serial number, you got to find out what it is, and then get, it's like, listen, when Jesus talked to the demons, what was the first thing he said? Be silent. Enough people have been listening to this thing. It's time for me to start talking. It's time for you to get out in Jesus' name. He did not bring himself into it. Eve did. Well, we are allowed to do this, but we're not allowed to do that. Don't you want to be wise? Well, I guess I do. Jesus responded with the word. He did not evaluate God's word. He simply obeyed. He said, this is what the Bible says. We're not having this talk. Brothers and sisters, why do we complicate things? We know we have an adversary. We know we have an enemy who hates us. He wants us dead. We know he attacks us. Why do we make it so easy sometimes? Maybe just a little bit. Maybe just a little taste. Maybe just a little swearing. Maybe just a little overindulgence. Maybe just a little pornography. Maybe just a, whatever, we're just a little bit, just a little bit here. Why do we do that to ourselves? I bet you Eve said to herself, I'm not, I'm not going to touch it. I'm just going to look. I mean, God didn't say we couldn't touch it. I mean, I guess I can touch it. And I guess if I take it off the tree, I haven't really eaten it, but I mean, you know, I've got it. And the Lord didn't say we couldn't smell it, did he? Yeah, you know, this really is, is beautiful. You know what? If I just do it once, I'm sure God will forgive me. That's how it goes, you guys. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That loincloth word could actually mean aprons. Like they made clothing for themselves. They ate the fruit. And they gained knowledge, all right, but it was no joy to have that knowledge. Because the only way that they could achieve the knowledge of good and evil is by first committing evil. So when they knew what was good and evil, they knew what category they fell into. You know, all the legends that the world has of, for example, Prometheus bringing fire to the people, bringing forbidden knowledge from heaven to the people. He's always the unsung hero of that story. Aren't we glad that Prometheus was brave enough to do that for us and the gods were so angry, but it's too late now? That's the devil's own propaganda. He makes himself the hero of his own story around the world. This was the worst possible thing that could have happened. And we're going to discuss more next week exactly the change that had come over Adam and Eve. But in short, they had knowledge of themselves. They had knowledge of their own sin and they couldn't handle it. Don't look at me. Never once had they had to say that. When you do something sinful, you don't want to look people in the eye, do you? 
You just, you dodge and you're looking around. You don't want to look right at people. They've never experienced that before. They've been naked and unashamed, and now they look at each other and they say, oh, no, don't, just don't. We've got to go cover ourselves up. We can't do this. Satan had told a half-truth, as he always does. They gained knowledge, all right, but it wasn't a blessing. It was a curse. Sin never pans out the way we expect it to, does it? It's passing pleasure, and it turns to ash in our mouths. You've got the very stark examples, of course, of the alcoholic or the drug addict who is continuing to pursue this thing that's destroying their life long after they enjoy it. Now, that's a very extreme example, but it also can apply to smaller and smaller things, can't it? Sin never keeps its promises. Sin ruins our lives, and it leaves us empty and ashamed before God. It never pays off, and yet we keep trying it. And as Christians, we come to church, we have a big weeping repentance. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. And then we get back up next morning, we feel better, and says, okay, well, you know, I don't feel guilty anymore. Maybe let's try that again. When are we going to determine by the grace and the power of God to renounce sin and walk in pure holiness? I'm not touching that anymore. Well, I don't want to be a legalist. Oh, my goodness, if that's not a lie that's been told a thousand times. I don't know if we should be watching that. Oh, are you a legalist? No, I don't want to be a legalist. I want to be a Pharisee. And now you're stuck. The church has decided to play games with sin, to walk the line, to see how close we can get. How, how much can I look just like the world and still technically be a Christian? And then you know what the enemy comes and does? He comes and he pushes, tells the lie, he throws the left hook. He pushes hard. And now people are finding themselves on the wrong side of the line. It happens over and over again. I've seen it so many times. You think you can play games. And the next thing you know, you find yourself on the other side. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 5? You know this one. If your right eye causes you to sin, have it join an accountability group for other eyes. <laughs> Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is like, if that causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your laptop, your internet connection causes you to sin, get rid of it. If that friendship causes you to sin, get rid of it. If driving that way to work every day causes you to sin, stop driving that way. Whatever it is, apply it to your own situation. If it causes you to sin, cut it off because sin will kill you like cancer. Adam and Eve had lost all the joy of life because of sin. It was gone. When we sin, the joy of worship is gone. The peace that we find in prayer is gone. The delight in the word of God is ruined because now you have re-erected that wall that stood between you and God. And there is grace and there is forgiveness, but don't let yourself fall into that trap. You can be free to enjoy the things that God intended freely. The devil is a bitter Wicked, evil spirit. He wants to see you ruined and writhing in shame because of your sin. Because that's what happened to him, and he hates everybody else because of it. Resist him, you guys. He has nothing to offer you but death. If every time he handed you sin, you could see that big skull and crossbones warning label on it, you'd be like, I don't think so. But he wraps it up in pretty packaging, and we get tricked. And now we think to ourselves, I'd love to, but I can't. I can't resist Satan. He's too strong. He's too powerful. I've done it for too long. 
I have good news for you. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love the book of James. James was a big, tough guy. Like, Satan's a wimp. Stand up to him. He won't fight you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Cling to that promise. When temptation is rocking your world, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you resist the devil, he will flee because he's a defeated foe. He's been vanquished at the cross of Jesus Christ. And you bear the name of God and his Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are a living, walking, breathing, holy place where the Spirit lives. And just like the fire would come out of the holy place and consume Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire. When Satan comes up and wants to offer strange fire in your heart, the Holy Spirit wants to fight for you and consume him. You've got Jesus on your team. So you don't be depressed and, oh, I can't believe I've done this again. You stand up. You say, I'm a soldier of Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 12, would you? We're going to finish here. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Now, throughout the Bible, I'll give you a little context here. You see Satan coming up in heaven and accusing the brethren. So apparently he still has access to the presence of God in some way. That's his thing. He's an accuser. But there's going to come a point after the rapture where it says in verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. We know who the dragon is. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And that passage goes on to describe how Satan is going to intensify the persecution of the Christians, and he's going to accelerate the kingdom of the Antichrist. But you know what's going to happen at the end? You know where Satan ends up? He gets booted out of heaven. God finally turns Michael loose. He says, Michael, would you please remove this gentleman from the court? Finally gets rid of him. The last place Satan ends up is the lake of fire. Satan has convinced the world that he is the king of hell, that he is the one that rules in hell with his little pointy stick poking people in, in hell. That's where Satan's going to end up. I said already, Matthew 25, it says that hell fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil is defeated, but he's angry and he's after us. You've got to frame your world by that, that Satan is after you, but he is doomed. You need to reframe your life. You need to decide right now that your life is a battle between you, the armies of God, Christ Jesus, and Satan, the enemy, the devil. Because Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's where he wants to take you away from. 
And that's also the solution. Sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Just simply being in love with Jesus. A lot of angry people want to tell you that's not enough. The Bible says that's exactly what you need. The world is a struggle between good and evil. The devil's at work to this day. He's very real, and he doesn't care about any of us. He doesn't care about any cause, any country, any king, any life. He wants to see God's world ruined. But Jesus has already won. He's already won. And one day the devil is going to be thrown into hell, and he's going to have a long time to think about what he's done. And you, Christian, have been commissioned to get out there, storm the gates of hell, and take back the captives that the usurper thinks he owns. This is why, by the way, we insist on the gospel and the forgiveness of sins as the most important thing. Because that's where we're strong and that's where he's weak. And Satan wants to keep the fight over here about stuff about issues, about whatever. The Lord says, I want you to go right for the throat and proclaim the liberation of the captives and kick down the gates of hell and bring some captives out of there. That's your job. We're no longer afraid. We're no longer defeated by this guy. We have been victorious by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony because we don't love our lives, so he can't come at us. I can make your life great. You say, I've already died with Christ. I have no life left except for what I live in Christ Jesus. You have a fierce, determined enemy, but if you put up a fierce, determined resistance, the Lord will come to you. He'll fight for you, and he'll lead you into that sincere, simple devotion to Jesus.